Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We thank you for uh, the gospel story. We thank you that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, took on human flesh so that he might die on a cross, making full payment for our sins, satisfying your righteous demands, and offering eternal life to all who place their faith in him. Father, I pray that we might understand who Christ is, that we might glorify him, Father, and our body and spirit, which which belongs to you. We pray, Lord, that we might receive with humility your truth. Help us to grow in your grace by your divine enablement. Sanctify the believers here through your truth, because your word is truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, verse 36. John five thirty-six. And as we've been studying this section, we're dealing with various witnesses to who Christ is. Um, This debate in chapter 5, this interaction, we could call it, really not a debate, but really an interaction between the Jews and Christ originates back in verse 16. In John 5, 16, uh, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. He healed a man on the Sabbath early on in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Uh, and he violated, in their minds, the Sabbath. And uh, he explained, though, that he was doing the work of God. It's not sinful to do God's work on the Sabbath day. That was not a violation of the Sabbath command. That was their view of Sabbath regulation. Um, But Jesus answered them and said, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. And so I'm only doing what the Father has told me to do. And that was a claim, clear claim of deity, a clear claim of deity called God his Father. The Jews understood that in verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath in their minds, but he said that God was his Father. Notice this last line, making himself equal with God. So in their minds, that was blasphemy. And that deserved stoning. Certainly that was... Uh, a, a claim that no one can make unless they were who they claimed to be. And Jesus Christ, as we've, uh, we've examined in the past, that there are at least nine passages in the Old Testament that declared that Messiah would be both God and man. God and man. And the Old Testament scriptures point to the fact that Messiah is both divine and human. So this continued in... Uh, Jesus laid out several witnesses as if in a courtroom pointing to the fact that it's not just my claim that I'm the Son of God, but it's also the claim of my Father. It's the claim of the Word of God. It's the claim of John the Baptist. He, it's the claim of my, my miracles. They, they point to my deity. And so he lists a whole series of proofs or evidences in the section of who he is. Now we're at the point in verse 36. Let's read from verse 36 uh, following down to uh, verse 40. But I have a greater witness than John's for the work which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness to me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who has sent me has testified to me, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you. He's speaking to these unbelieving Jews. Uh, because whom he has sent, him you do not believe. 
You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. You're not willing to come to me that you might have life. The evidence is all out there of who I am. But you refuse to believe. And that's the bottom line. Now let's continue with these various witnesses. Let's get rid of this here. Uh, Let's see. All right. I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me uh, to finish. The very works I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, Jesus Christ, of course, was sent by the Father to fulfill uh, the purpose and plan of God. We know in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so the Father was sent, sent Jesus Christ on a mission. And uh, this, by the way, uh, indicates that there is a relationship between the Father and the Son. Once we understand the Father, fa- once we understand the Father-Son relationship, we can see that everything that Jesus said and did was precisely what the Father said and did. So He's simply fulfilling the mission and plan of the Father. Now. In verse 37 he says, The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And I think the point he was making is, you haven't seen God, you still believe in him. But here I'm showing you all these things, this miracle that began this conversation. I'm showing you clearly who I am. You've heard John the Baptist's evidence. You have the Old Testament scriptures. I'm here in the flesh, in person, and yet you refuse to believe me. You refuse to believe me. And I think that's the point here when he speaks about the fact that they haven't heard God's voice any time nor seen his form. Uh, But they still believe strongly in God, but they don't believe in his son who is there in bodily form doing all these things and showing them the evidence. Now, the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. Now the word testify, we have the Greek verb uh, here, marturo, meaning where we get the word martyr from this word, but it doesn't necessarily mean a one who dies here, but it simply has the connotation of witness. A witness, uh, testify, one who testifies is a witness. So this perfect active indicative indicates that this action began in the past, and continues on into the present. So in the past, the Father has testified of me. And this uh, indicates that this testimony is complete. And that testimony, as he will explain in verse 38 and 39, is the Word of God. The Word of God is the ultimate witness by the Father, because the Father certainly inspired the Scripture and uh, use holy men of God to uh, write and record what the Father wanted. And therefore, it's the Father's witness in the Old Testament Scriptures to the Son of God. And notice here it says in verse 38, You do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify me. So many scholars believe that this certainly is testimony of the Father is the Word of God. Now we do know that God did verbalize that testimony on occasion. He did so at his baptism. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. But I think he's pulling forward here at this point, uh, demonstrating that the Father's witness ultimately would be the Word of God. 
Now, I made the point that um, they have not heard God's voice at any time. <laughs> it's interesting how people claim to hear God's voice today. Uh, but but uh, you have them, he says clearly, you have not heard his voice at any time. Now, Moses, though, did hear God's voice. And I think he's alluding back to that point. You're using Moses as an authority uh, but yet you have not heard God's voice. Exodus chapter 19, verse 19. God can reveal himself, and he has so in the past, but doesn't mean that that's the way God reveals himself today. We have to understand that. People look at how God revealed himself through dreams and visions and speaking directly, and God did reveal himself in that way in the past, but that doesn't mean that God uses that means today. As a matter of fact, uh, in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, we indica- indicates that God used that in the past. The ultimate revelation is the person of Christ. He is the ultimate re- revelation of God. But God used various means to reveal himself, including verbal means. Exodus chapter 19, verse 19. Uh, when Moses at the foot of the Mount Sinai, we have several phenomenon which uh, occurred. Uh, the mountain was uh, on fire, verse, not, verse 18. We have smoke ascending like the smoke of a furnace. Uh, the mountain was shaking. There was a great earthquake. And then this trumpet blast growing louder and longer. <laughs> and then the voice of God. Moses spake and God answered him by voice. No wonder the children of Israel were fearful <laughs> uh, when God was revealing his holiness and communicating his commands to Moses. So, here we have the voice of God that appeared to Moses. And in one sense, the voice would be the word for, uh, we get the word phone from this Greek word, by the way. <laughs> phone, uh, uh, phonics. Uh, we have several words in English that derive from this Greek word, phone. And here would be the personal voice of God. You've not heard the personal voice of God like Moses heard uh, at any time. Nor have you seen his shape or form. Idos means shape and structure of something, as it appears to someone. The outward appearance of God. You did not see God in his form. Now Moses did request to see God, but God did not show his whole essence. This does not contradict uh, the fact early in the Gospel of John, there's a passage that says no one has seen God at any time. The idea of that verse is God in his full essence. How can you see an omnipresent being? I can't see, you know, uh, even when you're out to uh, uh, sea, I think the horizon may be 70 miles. Uh, uh, at some point, you cannot see the earth is curved, so you can only see so far. But how can you see a God who fills heaven and earth? You can't. And God can reveal himself. Uh, in in one sense, in various forms. And certainly Christ took on human nature to reveal the Father. But God in his full essence is unseen. Uh, He had not seen his form or his shape or structure, his outward appearance. Now Jacob, though, who uh, was God revealed uh, uh, himself to Jacob, he saw at least the outward appearance of God. In Genesis chapter 32, let's look back at that passage. Genesis 32, verse 30 and 31. Jacob called the name uh, Peniel, for I have seen God face to face. 
and my life is preserved. Now, obviously, he did not mean that God and his entire essence he has seen, but God, at least in a form, appeared to him and revealed himself to Jacob. Uh, And therefore, uh, he uses that term about seeing God. So he may be alluding to these individuals in the Old Testament that they refer back to as their authority. And he says, you haven't seen or heard God like Moses, and you haven't seen his form like Jacob. Like Jacob. Now, Jesus, of course, is the very manifestation of God. The word became flesh. And therefore, they refuse to hear him, and they refuse to acknowledge that he is God in the flesh. So the Jews here, have they have God in, in the flesh standing in front of them, and they refuse to listen to him. They refuse to believe what he says in spite of the evidence, all the evidence that God has given. Notice, let's take a look at John chapter 1, verse 18. John chapter 1, verse 18. And here's the passage I was referring to earlier. No one has seen God at any time. Now you look at that and you say, what does that mean? I mean, would that undermine passages in the Old Testament that stated that Moses saw God and Jacob? And the answer would be no. The idea here is God and his entire essence cannot be seen. God can make appearance uh, and even take on human nature and you can see him, but his entire essence cannot be seen. So he's referring, that's what he's referring to in that passage. Later on, he would tell Philip this in John 14, 9. Philip says, uh, show the Father, show the Father to us in verse 8 of John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and this will be enough for me. Convincing evidence. Jesus said to him, how long I've been with you uh, and how long you have known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Meaning that I reveal who God is in my character. You know, God is love. Christ is love, loving. God is holy and Christ is holy. And you've seen a demonstration of God with you, uh, like Emmanuel, you know, that passage in uh, Christmas, uh, we say uh, Isaiah 7, um, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is what? God with us. God with us. And so Christ is there and revealing himself uh, as uh, sent by God, and the Jews refuse to heed that witness. Now, the other verse I was alluding to, sometimes my mind runs ahead of my notes, uh, but uh, Hebrews chapter 1, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. This shows that God did reveal himself in various ways to the prophets in the Old Testament. But ultimately, that looked forward to the chief revelation of God, which is his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, who at various times and in various ways. So various periods of history in the Old Testament and in various methods, various means. God revealed himself directly to Moses. God revealed himself as an angel of the Lord. God revealed himself to Joshua. God revealed himself and uh, dreams and visions as in Isaiah the prophet and the prophet Daniel uh, God manifests himself in various ways in the Old Testament and he uses what we call various means of direct revelation or special revelation in revealing his word 
But ultimately, verse 2, He hath in these last days spoken to us by His Son. How is God speaking to us today? He's speaking to us by what is recorded through the Word of God about Jesus Christ. And so we can study the Scripture and learn about the character of Christ through the Word of God. But these Jews had God in the flesh standing in front of them, showing them the evidence. And they don't want to hear. They want to plug their ears. They don't want to come to Him. They don't want to see. You know, some people, we can show them all the proof. And by the way, that just like the creation in Romans 1, people can see the evidence of a divine designer. And the minute details, they can see design, and yet take that knowledge and shove it out of their consciousness. Suppress that truth in their unrighteous rebellion against God. So these Jews had the evidence. It's not like God did not want to reveal himself to them, but they did not want to believe. So the onus was on them. And this is very important when we will see later, you are not willing to come to me. <laughs> it's not because God did not elect them. We get into the word election. We, you know, Some people think that God irresistibly elected them. And so he, he brings them, kicking, dragging, and screaming uh, to salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that. God does have a plan in the past for us. Certainly, God did send his son Jesus to die for us. And God gives us volition. He gives us the ability to believe. And uh, the individual who does not believe is condemned. The one who does believe is not accepted in the blood. But the Jews do not want to believe. They do not want to come to him. So he's saying here, you do not have to hear his audible voice or see his visible form, but simply believe the record that God has given of his son. If you don't want to believe what I'm saying to you, certainly the word of God, though, you need to believe. You have the scripture. They, and later on, he'll use an imperative, kind of a, an imperative sense. Uh, search the scriptures. You have the word of God. Look in your own scripture and see the evidence that points to me. Believe that then. Do I meet those qualifications? And certainly Jesus does. When we look at all the evidence uh, pointing to the fact that Jesus is who he claims to be, it lines up perfectly with what the prophetic scripture reveals about Christ. So simply believe the word of God and uh, listen to that evidence. But notice here in verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Notice that you do not have an illumination of the scripture because you're not born again. We can make application, by the way, here in this passage. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... There's no way you can have a clear understanding of the Word of God. Now, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that you cannot learn facts about the Bible. Certainly, you can have a lot of facts about the Bible. You can memorize Scripture. A lot of things you do, but you have no spiritual perception. Because the Word of God is spiritually perceived. You cannot understand the significance of the Word of God until you're born again. And then, as a born-again believer, one who walks in fellowship with God. So if you're carnal, <laughs> there's, if, you're, if you refuse to listen to God's word as a believer, how can you expect God to reveal more truth to you? But you don't obey the truth that you do have. 
And therefore, when you're walking out of fellowship with God, God cannot reveal His Word and illuminate. We call that the doctrine of illumination. God cannot illuminate the Word of God to your soul because you're not you're not believing, you're not resting in faith, and you're walking and rebelling against Him. So certainly there's application here in this passage. He's speaking here, though, to these Jews who um, do not have God's logos abiding in them. Now, it's interesting, the word word there uh, refers to what God's revealed through the Scripture, but Jesus is the living word. We had the written word, logos, in the beginning was the logos, and Jesus is the living word, and there's also the written word of God, and words reveal thought. And therefore, uh, that's the idea. That God's word reveals his thinking. Uh, and that's why he inspired the scripture, so that we can understand what God desires. And we call that divine revelation. You do not have his word abiding in you. The word meno is a present active participle. It means to remain. The word of God is not remaining in you. And the reason is, is because of your unbelief. Um, the Bible wants, God wants the Word of God to abide in our soul. And certainly we need to study it. We need to meditate on it. We need to accept it by faith. We need to be willing to obey it. And the Word of God can have its maximum effectiveness when we do those things. Uh, Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. And before Joshua went into battle, he reminded Joshua of his abiding presence with him. And he also encouraged Joshua to study the Word of God. And notice here, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Let me turn this sound off here. Let's see. And just... Yeah, if you're online, mute yourself, Okay. Alright, Joshua 1.8 The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. And the idea of meditation is to study it, reflect upon it. Um, the idea that you might be obedient, you might observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Psalm chapter 119. Psalm 119. Verse 11. <clears throat> Certainly the longest chapter in the Bible speaks of the Word of God. <laughs> Psalm 176 verses, all about the Scripture. Uh, Psalm 119.11 Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word is a preventative. As we understand God's viewpoint, it helps us to acknowledge what God desires and wants and uh, helps us to avoid sinful action. So we need the Word of God resident in our soul, continuing, continuing to circulate through our soul as we think about it, reflect it, obey it. Uh, other passages on the importance of the Word of God abiding in the believer in John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You are my followers. Uh, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That truth will liberate you. 
But you've got to continue in that truth. Continue to abide in the truth of God's word. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 7. John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. And the only way that can happen is if we study it, meditate upon it, reflect upon it, and God's word is abiding in you, then you will be you will ask what you desire and it shall be done to you. Prayer life will be effective because we'll know the mind of the Lord. <laughs> if we want our prayers to be effective, we need to know what God desires. And so many people pray sinfully. You know, James talks about praying that we might consume it upon our own desires instead of God desires. But we want God's desire when we pray, it will match his will and it will happen. It will happen. So we have to be in fellowship and we have to know what the word of God states so that we can pray intelligently. First uh, John chapter two. First John chapter two, verse fifteen. First John two fifteen. Uh, we are not to love the world, and loving the world hinders our desire for the Word of God. We cannot love the Word of God and love the world at the same time. Even Jesus states, no one can serve two masters. You're going to hold to one or the other. You can't try to serve both. We cannot love the world system and love the Word of God. And therefore, we have to make a choice. We have the choice to obey His Word versus obey those things in the world love the world and the things in the world so the word of god does not remain in you the word of god therefore cannot have impact in the life of an unbeliever it cannot have an impact in the life of the unbeliever i would also say here that um, notice for the believing israelites the word of God did not impact because they were not walking in fellowship. In Hebrews 4.2, I would apply this to sanctification here. Now, he's speaking here of the message of the promised land. So when we read the word gospel here in Hebrews 4.2, word gospel means good news. Good news about what? Children of Israel were offered the promised land, and when they were at Kadesh Barnea and sent the spies over, the report came back. And they did not believe that God could give them the ability to go in and conquer the giants. They were not walking by faith. We have the word of God, his promise, the land belongs to you. But it's not going to benefit you because you're not believing it. A lot of people take this passage as, you know, how to go to heaven. But it's not. It's, he's not talking about that. He's addressing here believers who do not, who do not rest in faith in what God has promised. And therefore, they have no benefit in their Christian walk. For the good news was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Why? You hear a lot of times individuals who are frustrated with God and they'll say that God's word does not work. I tried it, you know, and therefore it doesn't work for me. What's the problem? Is the problem with the word of God? No, the problem is not with the word of God. The problem is with you. And the problem is with your rebellion and your unbelief. That's why it's not benefiting you. Because you refuse to walk by faith and not by sight. And therefore, the word of God did not benefit the exit generation, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. There it is. There's the equation. Don't want to believe what God has spoken, what, what he's revealed. 
I don't want to rest in his promises. I don't want to trust in him. I want to trust in my resources, in my strength, in my power. Therefore, I'm going to fail. I'm going to fall. Because God's not the one doing it. I am. We sing a song, the arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. See? You're thinking in human viewpoint. And you blame God for it. (laughs) Blaming God. You don't follow his ways. You don't believe his promises. And then when things go off the wall, off the road, (laughs) you complain. Children of Israel did that, by the way. They were complaining generation. They complained, complained, complained. Ten times. Murmur, 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 murmur. Because they did not mix faith with the promise of God, the word of God. Therefore, no impact. And so the Jews here, though, um, here, they did not believe, as far as even initially, that who Christ is. So they're, they're not believing in Christ for eternal life, certainly. Uh, God sent his son, but you refuse to believe. Let's take a look at John 3, verses 16 through 18. John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his unique son. The word monogenes means one of a kind. Jesus Christ is unique. That refers to his deity, not his humanity. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's a great evangelistic verse, by the way. Is that why? Am I here to condemn you? No, you're already condemned. (laughs) You're condemning an already condemned person. Uh, That's not the purpose of his first coming, by the way. The mission that he was assigned. He did not send his son into the world to bring condemnation. What was what did he? Why did he send his son for salvation? Look at this. But that the world through him might be saved. Might be saved, meaning that they believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He who believes in him is not condemned. <laughs> That's the issue. Faith or lack thereof. That's the bottom line in salvation, evangelism. You know, people want to make it about their evil deeds instead of faith in Jesus Christ. That's We need to direct people back to the Word of God. What does the Word of God state? How we can go to heaven. you got to go back to the Word of God. It's not your opinion. It's what the Scriptures states, what they state very clearly. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Here's the reason. Why are you condemned? One reason. Not because of your drug usage, not because of your homosexuality, not because of all these other things. You are condemned because you refuse to believe the gospel. Now that might sound shocking, but that's exactly what he's saying here. That is the barrier between you and God. What is preventing you from having a relationship with God? One thing, your unbelief. That's standing in the way. But once you believe the gospel... You are accepted in the beloved. You are in the family of God. That moment that you believe. Because. You are condemned because. You have not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And you still want to embrace. Your rebellious lifestyle. In the sense that. I don't want a relationship with God. 
See verse 19. We went into that passage. You're, you love the light. You love the dark instead of the light. <laughs> and uh, so I don't want to come to him to have life. I don't want to believe in his son. Your unbelief is the issue. And that's what he pointed out here to these Jews. You're not believing who I claim to be. Now, George Bryson says concerning the unwillingness of the listeners. He wrote a book called The Dark Side of Calvinism. (laughs) Here, the Lord specifically tells us why these men did not have the Father's word abiding in them. It was not because they were not elect or that they were not irresistibly or effectually called. It was not because they had not been subject to irresistible grace. It was because they inexcusably did not believe in God's Son. Here our Lord tells us why they could not have eternal life. It was not for any of the reasons Calvinism suggests. Rather, it was because they were not willing to come to God's Son in faith. That's it. And therefore, they cannot blame God when they go to heaven, or when they go to hell, (laughs) when they stand at the great white throne judgment. Uh, You know, you didn't elect me, and that's why, you know, I'm going to hell. Not that's not why. You did not believe. You had the opportunity to do so. Now, Jesus will tell these Jews, "You have the word of God. You need to believe that witness. You need to believe the witness concerning the scriptures, the witness of the scriptures that point to me, the Messiah. Search those words. Search the scriptures." The word search, present active imperative, we had the idea to investigate or explore. It doesn't mean simply read it. You know, it's important that we read the Word of God. And I want to encourage you, by the way, we do have um, a uh, handout back there on the table of reading the Bible through in a year. I encourage you to challenge you next this coming year to read the Scripture, read through the Word of God. But certainly we need to study it. We need to investigate it. We need to explore it. And uh, that's the idea. Investigate it. Explore it. The idea of searching the scriptures. Uh, The Greek word form for search may be indicative, a statement of fact. And so rendered you search, as many modern translations have it. And therefore, I think it's translated correctly here, search the scriptures. As Jerome Smith indicates here, search the scriptures almost has the imperatival force, commands. The imperatival uh, should be adopted here, that, that aspect of the Greek tense. The Jews did not search, but merely read the scriptures. As so many Christians today, had they searched diligently and believed, they would have accepted the claims of Jesus. Lessening the force of Christ's statements by taking it as an indicative rather than the imperative seems to distract from the Bible's teaching regarding itself, that we are to search the Scriptures, not merely read them. Acts 17.11, let's look at that. We have the example of the noble Bereans. You know those guys? (laughs) Um, They were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? And that they received the word with all readiness. Now, many people I've heard about you know, individuals who came out. I'm a noble Berean. You know, I check things out. Well, what did they do? Not simply they they did search the scriptures, but they were positive when the word of God was accurately taught. See, skip over that part. Notice what they did first and foremost. Acts 
Let's read it again. Uh, they received the word with all readiness. When it was taught accurately, they were ready to hear. First and foremost. So when it was taught face to face, they were positive. They were ready to hear. Then they went home and looked it up. Then they went home and say, well, Paul said that this passage points to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's take a look at it in the Word of God. Let's investigate it. Let's explore the Word of God. And that's what you should be doing both. Listen to the Word of God when it's taught accurately, accepting it by faith, and then going home on your own and investigating the Word of God. And that's why the, what the Bereans did. They explored it. They received the Word with all readiness. They were ready to take in the Scripture. And search the scriptures, both, and search the scriptures daily, daily, to find out whether these things were so. There's demonstration of daily Bible study right there in the Word of God. Daily, daily. Give us this day our daily bread. We think about the Lord's Prayer, what what people call the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. You eat every day, right? You eat every day. But the idea is we are to take the Word of God and, and study it daily. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Although King James has study to show yourself approved. <laughs> uh, the idea of diligence as a worker who does not need to be ashamed. That is an individual who studies to the point of exhaustion. The idea of worker means it's laboring. It's not easy sometimes to study the Word of God. It's exhausting uh, when we investigate the Word of God. But we need to be that diligent worker who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the Word of Truth, that means to cut it straight. We choose in those days, Paul was a tent maker. He's telling Timothy, a future pastor teacher, or probably current pastor teacher here, but he was telling them, as you have material cloth, you want to make, you want to cut it right. You want to cut it straight. And with the Word of God, the way we do that is by looking at its context and examining its historical background. We want to handle it accurately because you can handle the Word of God inaccurately. And therefore, it's up to you, Timothy, to handle the Word of God correctly. And therefore, it takes diligence. You need to labor, labor in the Word of God. So, search the Scripture, labor, investigate, study it. The word Scripture is the word graphe. It means the written Word of God. Get the word graphite. Always think about the number two pencils that they gave us in grade school. And by the way, I had a collection. What well, was really neat, they had a pencil dispenser in, in, in school. And uh, you put your, well, I forgot how much, a dime or whatever. And they would have different football teams on those pencils. And so I collected all the football teams. I had the, enti- I have the entire collection of pencils. And they had a different team in each different pencil. So you know, I thought, like trying to get, okay. You know, I got 20 of the Cowboys, but I don't have any of the Steelers, so <laughs> put my dime in. <laughs> Would have done well down here, but I wanted one of the Steelers. Finally got one. I have a complete collection of number two pencils. 
Now, <laughs> so the word graphite, <laughs> the right, that's the idea. The word graphe, the written word of God. Written word of God. And so, go back to the word of God, the written word of God. And the in those scriptures, you had the message of grace, salvation by grace through faith and the gift of everlasting life. Think about that. And then you think you have eternal life. Eternal life. But they thought, though, here's here's their thinking. They thought just to have the Word of God means I'm okay. <laughs> right? How many people think that? Well, I have this family Bible on my coffee table, right, gathering dust. <laughs> and I'm okay with God, right? That makes me spiritual. The Jews, we had the Torah, right? We had the Word of God. We had the Scripture. Those heathen, they don't have that. They don't have a copy of the Word of God. We have it. And Jesus said, investigate it. (laughs) Open that family, dusty family Bible and search it. Search it. And it will tell you eventually about me. It's going to point to me. When you see all the prophecies line up, you'll see me in the Word of God. So eternal life does not come by possessing the Scripture, (laughs) but by believing the Scripture concerning Jesus. Faith comes by what? Hearing? Hearing by what? Word of God. It's the Word of God that we need to heed. Now, they are they. (laughs) These are they which testify of me. And I was amazed going through a lot of the passages in the Gospel of Acts how many times the apostles used the Old Testament scriptures to point people to Jesus as the Messiah. It's profound. And I challenge you to study the book of Acts and see. We're going to, I'm going to list a lot of these passages in the book of Acts and other places that point to the fact that the Old Testament scripture is, it reveals who Christ is. Now, John one forty, John one forty five. We'll begin there, John chapter one verse forty five. <clears throat> now Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, "We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote." Right there, Moses wrote about who Jesus is, who, about Jesus. The prophets wrote about him. And so this is a clear declaration of messianic passages in the Old Testament that point to Jesus. Moses and the prophet wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. John chapter 2, verse 22. John 2, 22. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said to them, and uh, he's talking about the resurrection, about tearing this temple uh, and, and tearing it down and I will raise up the third day and that was a prophecy of Christ's resurrection his disciples remembered that and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said notice that they believe the word of God the word of God the Old Testament scripture points to the resurrection of Christ John chapter 3 verse 10 Jesus spoke to Nicodemus he speaks about the giving of the Holy Spirit and the need to be born again 
And he says here, um, uh, question, are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? <laughs> don't you know about the word of God? Uh, don't you understand the scripture concerning these things? Uh, John chapter 5, verse 45 and 46 do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. What about, well, notice this bold statement. For he wrote about me. Hmm. Moses wrote about me, the one standing here in the flesh. That's certainly a claim, that's a claim of deity there, and the claim that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, John chapter 20 verse 9 John 20 verse 9 and here we have the resurrection of Christ and um, let's look at verse 8 the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must raise again rise again from the dead the word of God Certainly we have the resurrection itself that validated the scripture. Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, verse 25. And the keys, of course, after his resurrection, there was a great conversation between one of the disciples, not the 12 disciples, I don't think, but one of the followers of Jesus concerning the recent events. And normally we preach on that passage around Easter. <laughs> But I think it's a good passage as well around Christmas. Notice in Luke 24, verse 25. Luke 24, verse 25. He chided these individuals on the road to Emmaus. He said, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You need to believe what the Old Testament prophets spoke about, pointing to me. Ought not the Messiah, the Christ, to have suffered these things. What? We're thinking about the recent events of the crucifixion. Those were predicted by the prophets. Isaiah prophesied about Messiah's death, Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Isaiah 52, at the end of that chapter, Isaiah 53, spoke of his death and resurrection. Ought not the Messiah to have suffered these things and then to enter into his glory? And notice the lesson I wish I was there to hear this lesson. Verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a Bible lesson. Let's begin at Moses. What did Moses say about me? What did uh, you know, Isaiah say about me? What, did, uh, you know, what about uh, Micah? All these prophets, what about Daniel? Going through all the various prophetic scriptures, expounding on those, pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. Um, notice in this passage that their eyes were open. Look at verse 31. Take a look at verse 31. And I notice this is a great connection. I forget where I read this, but this is a great connection here. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 31. Then their eyes were open, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And notice verse 32. Their heart was open. 
They said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road? And notice that was that happened because the scriptures were open. While he opened the scriptures to us. <laughs> so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven. So I like this, that their eyes were open because their heart was open. And therefore, the scripture was open. And that, that shows you that they were willing to listen. They were positive. They were positive to what Jesus was saying. Their heart was not closed to the truth. Their heart was open to the word of God. And Luke, uh, so let's take a look at Luke 24, verse 45. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the songs concerning me. That covers the entirety of the Old Testament. So you have the three classifications of the Old Testament scriptures. The Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. We have the prophetic revelation and the songs. And that certainly would include many of the historical books. So we have really some stated that that's a summary of the entire 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, these things were mentioning, were pointing forward to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the living Word of God. Now, Acts went through the book of Acts, just pointing out various, looking at various passages this past week and it's just amazing to see all the places where the Old Testament scriptures are referenced and concerning Jesus certainly the key theme in Acts is the resurrection certainly the resurrection is proclaimed in the early church as well as Christ's death but the scriptures are referenced all the way through the book of Acts the Old Testament passage let's just look at a few where we don't have time to develop all these. We'll pick this back up next time. But let's begin in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. And his apologetic to the Jews gathered there are the Messianic prophecies. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to God by you by miracles. Notice, that's a witness. Attested as the idea of witness. Same thing John's developing here in John 5. Uh, The miracles that Christ performed pointed to who he was. His wonders and signs, those are three different Greek Greek words for miracles, which God through him did in your midst, as you yourself know. You were there. You witnessed those things. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, it was God's plan that Christ would be handed over to death. He would die on the cross. But you're responsible because you cried out, for the death of your Messiah, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. We have the sovereignty of God and free will of man coexisting in that passage. Christ's death on the cross was determined from eternity past, but yet the individuals who did that were responsible. How about that? Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then he goes back to prophecy of David. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart will rejoice and my tongue will be glad. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in 
Hades, nor you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Meaning that his soul was not left in the, uh, the righteous compartment of Hades, and his body was not left in the grave past three days. It did not see corruption. Remember Lazarus? He was dead four days. And he says here, this was what David prophesied about the Messiah. You have always made known to me the way of life. You have made me known fullness of joy in your presence. And he argues that this is not in reference to David. This cannot be in reference to David, because David is still dead. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and the tomb is with us to this day. He's still there. He's not risen. So, when David wrote this, who is he referencing? He's referencing Jesus. <clears throat> Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ and sit on his throne, another prophecy that Christ will fulfill one day. But in order for that to be fulfilled, he must be, he w- that he would not remain, be, uh, he would not be in the grave, remain in the grave. R- Resurrection is a precursor to his future reign. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, Messiah, that his soul was not left in haste, nor did his body see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on this what you see now and here. And even David said, uh, he did not ascend into the heavens, for he said himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, Till I make your enemies your footstool. That is a quote of, out of Psalm 110, verse 1. And that is a prophecy of Christ's present session at the right hand of the Father. So, not only resurrection, he quotes another passage out of the Psalms concerning the Messiah that he would be at the right hand of the Father, where, by the way, he promised, Jesus predicted that after his death he would ascend back to heaven and send the Holy Spirit. So the fact that the Holy Spirit has arrived in a unique way points to the fact that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Which is exactly what Psalm 110 states. So see how he's arguing with the Jews here. Jesus is who he claims to be. Here's the proof. Here's the proof. Notice verse 36, he sums it up. Therefore let all the house of Israel know surely that God had made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord, which is what he is at the right hand of the Father, and Messiah, Christ. And therefore, he is who he claims to be. And then you can go on and on. We have Philip in the desert speaking to an Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading Isaiah 53. He begins to preach Jesus to him. Do you understand who this he's referencing? The eunuch asked, you know, Isaiah the prophet, who is he referring to here? Jesus. (laughs) And all the way through the book of Acts, including first, and then forward into 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So all the prophecies point to the claim of Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And those very scriptures that you love, that you, you possess, you do not believe. Think about that. Those are the ones that testify of me. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word of God.
and passages that point to the fact that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, took on human flesh, that he died on the cross as our substitute, bearing our sins in full. He rose bodily from the dead and is now seated in an exalted position at the right hand of the Father. All these promises and passages points to who Christ claim, who Christ is. And we thank you for your Son, Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that everyone here might have a personal relationship with the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and might continue to walk by faith and not by sight. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.